0: Well, hey, everybody. Uh, welcome back. Thanks for uh, sticking around with us this morning. Um, it's kind of a kind of a gloomy day, kind of a nice day, actually, to curl up, maybe. So if that's you right now, um, hope you're having fun doing that. Uh, like Julie said earlier, um, we're the two pastors here at Resurrection City. And on a morning like this, where we're in the shelter-in-place order, and we can only have uh, whoever is living with you over, it's actually kind of helpful to have a husband-wife pastor team. So um, we're kind of blessed in that way. Um, if, like Julie said, if you're just checking us out, uh, we're really excited that you are doing that. Um, please uh, stick around. You're, you're on our YouTube page or our Facebook page already. Go ahead and look around. We have a lot of other content that we have up on the sites and uh, stuff to hopefully keep you busy while you're um, in quarantine. So uh, please avail yourself of all that stuff. Go to our website, redcitychurch.org for other things. Um, we're just really happy that you're checking us out this Sunday morning. You could be a lot of different places here, and you chose to be with us, so thank you for that. Um, we have been going through the Book of John. We're in chat. We're going to be starting Chapter Two today. Uh, so if you have a Bible or you want to open up on your Bible app or even open another uh, browser on or another tab on your browser to read along with us, we're going to be in John uh, two verses one to twelve today. We're going to be talking about. Uh, when Jesus makes uh, a wine out of water at the wedding at Cana. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the passage for us here quick uh, to start, and then I'm going to kind of just hop in and break it down like we do every single Sunday. So here we go, John 2, 1-12. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mothers and brothers and his disciples. They stayed there for a few days. So, like I said, we have been in the book of John, and we're calling this part of the, of the book of John. We kind of have broken we're gonna be breaking John into several little mini sermon series, each kind of reflecting what is going on in the book of John at that point. And we're calling this one come and see, because this is where John is revealing. Uh, God come in flesh as Jesus, revealing that glory to us. This is kind of the introduction to Jesus in the book of John. Just kind of laying out who he is, what he's done, and what it looks like when God comes to earth to bring uh, the kingdom of God, or what John calls eternal life, we'll, we'll find. Okay, so think about what John is doing here. Think, think as if, if you're, you're trying to bring people to belief in Jesus, think of it like John is offering an argument to us, and so, what do you do when you're trying to formally bring someone to like a conclusion? Think like a lawyer here, actually. This is kind of helpful. John, seem, John seems to be thinking like a lawyer in this sense. So, two weeks ago, we talked a lot about witnesses and testimony. John is very concerned to bring witnesses and testimony to our attention to, to draw us to belief in God. Now last week we talked about skepticism. What happens when someone uh, sees a witness or, 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 or some testimony to Jesus and, and experiences some doubt or some um, skepticism to that. Last week John brought to our attention somebody who um, was skeptical but then came to believe, kind of overcame that belief. Someone that we can maybe resonate with if we're reading the book and that's us. And now this week, again, if you're presenting, uh, you're trying to bring people to like a formal conclusion, this week, John is going to bring evidence to us. Now, specifically, the evidence that John talks about is signs or miracles. Now, let's just talk about miracles really quickly here. I feel like we have to, we have to pause and talk about the nature of miracles a little bit. Um, I think in our culture today, there's kind of a pervading view that you have to choose between, on the one hand, uh, science, and on the other hand, you have to choose between supernatural or miracles, as if there are two separate worlds and you're kind of choosing which world you're going to believe in. Do you live in a world that's governed by science and natural law, or do you live in a world that's governed by fairies and demons and magic and stuff like that? Kind of. It's kind of like we have to choose between one of the two if we're going to take the idea of miracles that are in the Bible seriously. We have to pick one of those camps out. And if we Pick the world that believes that this stuff actually happened. What we read about today, Jesus turning water into wine, and we kind of are choosing to live in this world of uh, of fairies and magic and 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 whatever you whatever you call it, miracles and stuff. Now, there's some some problems I think with with that with that sort of dichotomy, that kind of stark divide. Uh, the first is that like we do, what do what do we mean when we say science on the one hand what do, what does that mean science and what do we mean by supernatural what what, what does it mean these are kind of ill-defined terms uh, another is is that like when we are like that's not a way that that when John is writing that they would have thought about it like as if there's science on the one hand and miracles or whatever on the other that's actually something that we kind of invented, the sort of divide that says you have to believe in one of the two, really around the time of the Enlightenment. That's when that starts to really crop up, as if there's sort of one camp that you can choose. Now, it's continued on until today, but I think it's fair for us to really challenge that assumption. And I want to do that a little bit uh, today. And, and and kind of a, a last problem is, again, like I said, these are kind of ill-defined terms, right? Especially science. Um, when we de- define science in such a way that, that, that it's sort of... A priori or, or out of hand assumes that there's no such thing as as miracles can exist. It's act, we're actually kind of moving beyond what science actually is supposed to be, um, and so really, there's actually no such thing as scientific arguments against uh, miracles. Um, only really philosophical arguments. Now, if you if you want to know what I mean by that, I'd love to break that down more, but uh, I'm not going to do it in the sermon. If you do want to know more what I mean, or kind of kind of Again, I have a, I have a, I've done a lot of research on this actually, but I figured the sermon was not the right place for it. But if you do want to learn more, it's actually why we included the question and answer time in the sermon. So, if you'd like to hear a little bit more about uh, some of the problems between uh, the, the, co- the so-called conflict between science and miracles, um, throw, go ahead and throw it in the comments and I'll try to address it at the end of the sermon. Okay, um, But what, what I want to do talk about today is the idea that... Uh, Miracles, and the way that we think about miracles, again, I've kind of said that these are sort of ill-defined terms. The way that we sometimes think about miracle isn't helpful for us to try to really understand what John is talking about here. Um, miracle, the word miracle can mean lots of things. Uh, we use it to mean sort of highly improbable and unexpected sometimes. Other times we we, we take it to mean sort of like... Uh, circumventing the laws of nature. Something that doesn't follow what, what we know as the laws of nature. And that's what miracle must be. And actually John has a different uh, definition for him. And we actually have this in the passage. He actually describes what this is supposed to be. He calls them signs. In John two 11, uh, I'll read this again. He says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in them. So what does he call them? He calls them signs. Um, and so what we might call miracles today um, have actually a purpose John says and it's very clear that they that they are recognized to have some sort of purpose and that's to uh, reveal Jesus's glory now of course God can reveal Jesus's glory in whatever way he chooses he can choose to do it by working around what we might call or what's natural law what we what we might think of as scientific he can also do it through through other ways too. Let's let's just work backwards here, so kind of do, let's do a little thought experiment here. I actually have uh, some friends who are agnostics, we used to get together on a regular basis and just kind of hang out and have drinks and and talk about the nature of belief and and, and I remember one time we were talking about near-death experiences which is just like the phenomena of, of sometimes people, they'll be laying in a hospital bed, they'll be in a coma or near death, people might actually think that they that they were actually dead for a time and they sort of have a vision of themselves maybe leaving their body, kind of floating around the hospital or something like that. It's kind of a phenomena. it's, it's hard to explain, and people have had them for a long time, and we call them near-death experiences. Um, now, there's some scientific studies out there that, uh, that that say that there's maybe a part of something in our brain that causes this to happen. The science is, isn't really conclusive necessarily on it, but there's some data out there that says that that might be what's happening in some of these uh, near-death experiences. Now, think about it like this, if let's say that someone has that has the near-death experience and um, they come to belief in God because of it, they, they, they come to, they don't have any other way to explain what happened, it seemed incredible to them what happened and they begin to believe in God. Does it really matter if there was actually some breaking of natural law there, that they actually were floating out of their body and that's what was taking place or if it was their brain doing it? Either way, God his, his purpose is accomplished. It's, a, it's still a sign to His glory no matter what. And whether or not God chooses to work around the laws that He's set up in the world, or if He's chosen to uh, use what He's wired into our brains to cause it to happen, either way, it doesn't really matter. God is sovereign over it. He's able to do whatever He wants, and it, and it accomplishes its purpose. And that's what really matters when we talk about signs and miracles, is, is what the, what's being accomplished. Okay, and I think this is where the word sign is this more helpful when we're talking about what we might traditionally call miracles. Because what, what is a sign? When you think about a sign, it, a sign is not about itself. It, it actually doesn't, it has nothing to do with itself. Its sole purpose is to point you towards something else. It doesn't want to distract you. It actually wants to direct your attention. It doesn't want you to focus on it. It wants you to keep moving towards the thing that it points to. And if it does that, it's done its job. And, and so more specifically the goal of a sign is to point you towards something of substance it doesn't have any substance of its own and so this is how signs operate in the book of John and I think a very a, a more a more helpful way to think about the idea of miracles is let's let's not focus so much on on the, the miracle itself let's focus on what what that thing is pointing towards because I think that's what God wants to Wants us to be focused on, and that's very clear here in the book of John. So we're going to talk today about about the sign, but we're also going to talk more specifically about what the sign is pointing towards and what the implications are of that as we come to know who Jesus is and how and what John wants to reveal to us about Jesus. Okay, so um, let, let's let's hop into let's hop into it. But first, I do want to talk about one other thing. Maybe you're asking the question, uh, why don't why don't we see miracles or signs more often? This seems like something when you read the Bible that pops up all the time, right? John has several different signs in the book. And these are things I'm guessing a lot of you have never seen anything like this. Um, and so you're just kind of wonder why does it seem that this stuff doesn't happen? And just have a couple of thoughts on that. And that's all that they are is thoughts, okay? Because I don't have any answers. I'm not like the definitive... Um, Answer man on this topic, um, only God is. But just a couple of thoughts on that. The first is, we do actually like see plenty of signs still today. I think in the West we're more skeptical or ignorant of those things, or we try to explain it away sometimes. Um, but if you just read reports coming out of like China and Africa, like at the front lines of Christian ministry and you know breaking ground in places where the gospel's never been presented, you actually hear a lot more reports of signs and miracles and wonders that are, that are kind of popping up, okay? So, so just because you're not seeing it doesn't mean it's not taking place. And actually, we're going to talk a little bit about that in the passage. And, and the second thing I want to talk about is how we just have a hard heart on this topic in the West. So, and that can kind of color how we, we, we approach these passages, too. So when we read uh, passages about miracles in the Bible, we have to kind of pause and look at our own heart here. Um, There's actually a parable that Jesus tells in the book of Luke that really, uh, I think, is helpful for us as we approach this this subject. Uh, It's about a rich man and Lazarus. It takes place in Luke 16. And um, it's a parable that Jesus tells not in John, but it pops up in the Synoptic Gospels. And it's about a rich man and a poor man, and and they're living um, in the same place. The the poor man lives outside of the rich man's house, and, and they both die, right, about the same time. And the poor man ends up being a VIP in what, what Jesus calls paradise. Um, and we shouldn't re- we don't necessarily need to read too much into what's going on in the afterlife here, I don't think. But um, the rich man is not a VIP. And he kind of sees it and he begs Abraham, who, who's, um, who, who's a very prominent figure in the story with the poor man. And and he says, hey, uh, will you please send me back so I can visit my family? Because I want to tell them that they need to repent and change how living so that they don't end up like me. They can end up like this poor man. And um, Abraham is like, well, they can read their Bibles. like they, they have what they need for belief already. They can read their Bibles. And the, the 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 rich man presses. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And Abraham, uh, Abraham said back to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, um, this is kind of haunting, right? It's kind of a, a haunting thing, I think. It's a little bit... Uh, chilling for us in the West, because I think we in the West oftentimes are like that rich man a lot of times. We think, uh, oh, well, if, if, if some people saw a sign, you know, if I could see something that would just convince me, then I would, I would be convinced. But Abraham's point here, and Jesus' point really through, through Abraham's word is, if past stories of God's faithfulness won't matter, aren't enough to bring people to at least be interested in belief, then new ones aren't going to either. Uh, some people just kind of made up their minds, and, and the Bible calls this hardening our hearts. Um, and, and so, what Jesus is saying is, even someone who's raised from the dead is not going to convince people of belief if they have, oh, you know, have, have said, "I'm not. I don't want to believe in this thing. There's nothing to this that will cause me to believe." And Jesus, of course, is—he's he, being prophetic there because he's saying, if someone being raised from the dead won't bring people to belief, what will? And he's talking about himself there because Jesus knows that. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to rise again. And that's going to be the great sign that speaks to his glory and what God is doing, kind of vindicating him and his work and being the ultimate sign for us to believe. And, uh, and I think like, if people are, are not going uh, to be able to, to take that on and, and kind of rule that out of hand, there's, there's nothing that's going to convince some people. And so uh, I think that's sort of like something for us to grapple with. Now, obviously, the resurrection is, is the big sign, and, and we're coming up on Easter, and so I just want to give a little plug for that. We're going to talk about more about that sign of resurrection when we get to Easter. Why is that, why is that the sign that we, we come to and we say, this is it. This is what definitively and ultimately reveals God's glory in Jesus. Okay, so let's actually get into the passage now. Hopefully, we've, we've kind of worked around the concept of miracles and what, what that means, because I know that can be kind of a tricky one for us to deal with. All right, so let's get into it. John 2, 1 to 5. And then what I want to do is kind of reread some of these parts of it. And we're just kind of offer some observations. And then we'll move into some time of application. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, here's something you should know about Jewish weddings. I'm married to uh, my wife, Julie, who you just saw earlier. She's from Wisconsin. And I've heard from her and others that Wisconsin weddings are real parties. But here's the thing, Wisconsin weddings have nothing on Jewish weddings, okay? Here's a, this is a quote from a commentary by D.A. Carson just talking about Jewish weddings. A wedding celebration could last as long as a week, and the financial responsibility lay with the groom. To run out of supplies would be a, a dreadful embarrassment in a shame and honor culture. And there is some evidence that it could also lay the groom open to a lawsuit from a grieved relative to the bride. Um, so, uh, so, basically, th- these weddings, they, they, take, they stretch out over a long time, and you need a lot of wine if you're going like, to keep a party like that going on. So, what happens is, in this wedding, they, they run out of wine, and Jesus' mother comes to him, and she says, Hey, Jesus, they have no more wine. And he, he's, now, he, what he says to her here. Um, is well, the reason. Well, sorry. First, the reason that she's saying that to him is like we're out of wine. We can't keep the party going. The groom might be really shamed here, and um, and this this is a real problem. This is a real problem for us. Now, Jesus answers her. I'll read it again. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, "My hour has not yet come." Now, l- let's talk a little bit about that. The response might s- seems a little bit uh, harsh from Jesus, maybe, um, and he 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 did. Like, first of all, we need to kind of move beyond how sometimes when we call a woman, woman, like in our society today, that's not necessarily what Jesus is doing. But we should also draw attention to the fact that he's kind of distancing himself from his mother here. He's kind of telling her, hey, listen, um, I'm kind of kind of sidestepping what you might think of as my uh, family obligations here. Now, the reason he's doing it this is, is because he's kind of setting himself out as redefining his relationship to sort of not not just his, his mom and his family, but like all structures. And it's a really important thing for John that we'll see as we move forward. That he, he is coming, Jesus is coming and speaking of the authority of God and God alone. He, no, no human um, institutions are sort of preconditioning what he does. It all comes through his own volition uh, given to him by God. And he's sort of setting himself up by saying, I'm going to do this thing. That you're you're asking, we see that, but he wants them to know it's for him to reveal God's glory. So and and he wants the readers to know that as well. Jesus isn't just good being a good son here or a good family member of whoever is getting uh, married. He's also he's also doing this to reveal his glory, and that's kind of the main point here. Okay, so so his mother tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. And so while Jesus is just kind of distancing himself from his mom here, let, let's quickly just. Uh, John is giving his mom credit for having a really strong, persevering faith here too. She's even though Jesus has kind of uh, rebuffed her in a sense, she has said, uh, "I still believe you're going to do something amazing, Jesus." And her faith is commended by John here, by him uh, bringing that out. So let's just let's just give uh, Mary a little credit here as well. All right, let's continue verses six to eight. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding. From twenty to thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, "Fill the jars with water." So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, "Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet." They did so. So these uh, stone jars are used for uh, some ceremonial washing that the Jews did, um, and the, the purpose uh, of these of the ceremonial washing is sort of to to give them a, a sort of purity as they approach God. And we we won't get into it here a ton, but the thing we got to notice is that. This thing that is used for Jewish purity gets changed over into uh, something to be used for a party. That's the, that's the big symbolic point that John is getting across here. Last week we talked about a, a small story that didn't seem that important with, with the one Nathaniel skeptic. This week it's the same thing. It doesn't seem like a big deal that Jesus makes some wine for a party. It's not that big of a sign. It's not like a, a major healing. But there's a symbolic importance here that John wants us to grasp that we're going to talk about here in just a little bit. Let's finish up with with the passage, though. Verses 9 to 10. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned to wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though. The servants who had drawn the wine knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. Now, again, if a party is going to last for a week, usually what you do is you get the good wine out first, when people, uh, are, you know, when taste still matters to people. And after they have drank enough, then they don't really care what it tastes like. That's when you move into, like, the Bud Light and stuff, right? When people don't care that much about what they're drinking. Um, and so, usually, the wine that you're drinking later on is not that good of wine, but the master of the banquet, the guy who's kind of the, the wedding planner, the guy who's planning everything says, whoa, where'd this wine come from? This stuff is awesome. Usually, we like the wine that we're getting at this point in the party is not that good, but this stuff is way better than the stuff we got at the beginning. To, to sort of show you how good the wine that Jesus makes is, okay? How 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 uh, fantastic his work is in this in this sign that he's he's bringing up, uh, across, and people notice it. Now the thing that and the thing that we notice here and this is actually one observation I just want to make is that most people at the wedding don't really see what happens like they, they know that new wine is coming but only a few people who are in the back room knows what actually happened and and I think for us like uh, an interpretation for us from that is that sometimes God's signs will be for a selective audience and that's at his discretion God is not uh, again like we saw with Jesus he's not going to be uh, compelled to act in a way that he doesn't want to and sometimes He's content with, with a sign that he does, a miracle that he does, only being shown to one or two people because that fits his purpose. And Jesus uh, shows that, that that here as well. Now, that's not always true. We, we see some of his signs that happen in the book are are big signs that everybody notices and especially the resurrection is the case. Um, but just because some people don't notice it doesn't mean that it's not God working. So that's something just to, to kind of chew on for you. And a second observation here um, is that Jesus does his first sign right John tells us that this is the first sign that he did to reveal his glory now you are thinking if you're Jesus and you're trying to you're doing this big work of revealing your glory you'd pick a pretty uh, prominent way to reveal it but Jesus's first sign is at a party and he makes wine his first sign is to just keep a party going strong that's all that it is um, and I think that that's something for us to to consider too Jesus is not like there's a conception of Jesus and Christianity that that Christians and Jesus are just here to ruin your fun, right? But but that's not the case. Jesus isn't some boring prude who's going around at the party measuring to make sure that everybody is is standing an appropriate distance apart from each other to leave room for the Holy Spirit and swatting drinks out of people's hands and replacing them with Bibles. That's not what Jesus does here. He is content to just let the party keep going, and and I think that that tells us something about Jesus and tells us something about Christianity. A big A big point of this sign is that celebration is a key reaction to the coming of Jesus. And so Christians should be about fun and joy as well. We should travel. We should explore the world. We should drink and we should be merry. We should laugh. We should sing. We should dance. We should have fun. All right. There's this view of Christianity out there that says we need to be stoic and not have fun and and frown on everybody else's fun. That's not true. That's not what we see about Jesus here. And if we want to follow him well we should be willing to enjoy the world and have fun as well. Now, but, this, but here's the thing about that: is There's a specific type of Christian celebration. And when we put this sign into context, we see that the celebration that Jesus is doing here is a pointer. It's a sign uh, to, of the great celebration that Jesus brings in his coming. So, so Christian celebration looks a very specific way because we recognize what we're doing now is a sign of what Jesus is doing in bringing his kingdom to earth. Now, I kind of want to close the sermon by coming back to that, but I'm setting that out for you now so you can kind of be thinking about it until we come to that point. Now, like I said, each sign in the book of John has some sort of symbolic importance to it, even things that seem really small, like just you know, uh, creating a little bit of, of extra wine to keep a party going for a couple of days and, and having only a few people notice it. Like I said, there's some symbolism to it. John, as we've talked about in the past, is a very selective writer. And he's only telling very uh, important stories that he thinks that we should be reading about Jesus. um, That kind of give us a full sense of who he is when taken together. Okay? And so the symbolism here of this story, I think if you're a first century person reading this, it actually speaks to two contexts, the two main worlds that Jesus lives in. The first is the Jewish world. The sign speaks specifically to the Jewish world in this idea of the ceremonial washing jars going from this old covenant purpose of, of ceremonial washing into being used for um, celebration and party. Okay? These, like I said, these ceremonial washing jars were used for some ritual cleansing that was part of the covenant of Moses, part of Torah. Uh, something that Jews were supposed to do as a, as a way to sort of um, uh, pr- prepare themselves to coming into relation with God. And so you're constantly maintaining your approach to God through this ritual purity. And next week, we're actually going to talk about the main kind of center of that in the temple. And Jesus will kind of come up against the temple. So we'll get to engage with that more deeply. But, and this is what John is, is, very, is saying very clearly to, to the Jewish world. God has been faithful to bring the fulfillment of this old covenant now. And so because the fulfillment is here, there's supposed to be celebration. Now I talk fulfillment, I'm not talking about replacement. Um, just recently, uh, we had some people from Excel Energy come out and they do this initiative uh, where they'll go around your house and, and, and kind of replace um, older model things for newer ones that are more fi- energy efficient and better for the environment. And so we got some light bulbs replaced, uh, some older ones with these really nice LED ones that work better and last longer. Now, Jesus coming and, and fulfilling the covenant is not him coming and replacing something that was old and and just not as good with something that's better, right? That's not what's taking place here. It's more, fulfillment is more like this. Um, A a few years ago, a video circulated around YouTube. It got really popular and I'm guessing a lot of you have seen it. If not, you can actually pause the uh, live stream right here and look it up. I would, it's just a minute long. I would really highly suggest you do it. And It's about a a 29 year old woman. She'd been deaf her whole life and she gets these um, hearing aids that help her now hear as if she wasn't deaf, and, and the video is of her getting those put in for the first time in the doctor's office, and the first time that she hears herself uh, speak, and she just can't help but cry tears of joy, right? Because what, what's happening is now her ears went from not working, not doing what they're supposed to do fully, to working in the way that they're supposed to. There's a fulfillment of what her ears are and the purpose of them. They're working now. And that's the working in the way that they're supposed to. And that's what's taking place in Jesus fulfilling the old Jewish covenant. It now it works in the way that's supposed to. There's no sort of uh, drawbacks to it. It's not Lord plagued by by death and decay any longer. And and all that you can help but do in that in that time is to celebrate, to cry tears of joy, like the woman in this video. And so I think that that is what this sort of celebration idea is, is, is telling us. is When the fulfillment comes, we should be filled with joy because we can see what God is intending for the world coming to, to full flourish now in Jesus. Everything that we've been expecting, whether we lived in the time before Jesus came as Jews or we live now and we experience him as a fulfillment to sort of everything else that we have in us we, we find that fulfillment, we can't help but celebrate. And that actually, sort of that idea of, of, of Jesus fulfilling everything that we have, not just in the Jewish law, is the second world in which the sign speaks to. Remember I said Jesus' sign speaks to a couple? So um, there should be a picture on the screen here of a guy named Dionysus. Dionysus is the Greek god of, of partying. Okay, so this is the way in which the sign speaks to the, to the Gentile world, is by speaking to this Greek god named Dionysus. Now, the, the Greeks and the Romans, they, the, the pagan world of, of Jesus' day assigned a god or a goddess to everything that happened, including partying. And so Dionysus is like the god who resembles the person you knew in college whose major was uh, keg stands, right? His whole life is like a Rick Ross video. That's, that's Dionysus. He just partied all the time. And there's actually a story about Dionysus also turning water into wine. Apparently, um, the, the followers of Dionysus believed in this story where he did the same thing. And, and so, so that's kind of interesting, right? But if we, again, we're taking this idea of miracles as a sign, and we, we apply that to Dionysus, what is Dionysus doing? What is the sign that he is pointing to by him apparently turning water into wine? And the answer is, is so people could just keep drinking. And, 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 and not truly celebrate anything, right? This sign, this miracle, just it points back to itself. It doesn't have anything of substance that it points to. It just points to, to the idea of like, let's just keep the party going longer. Uh, drink and be merry because what else are we going to do, right? What, what else do we have? It's kind of fun when we do this. Um, just drink up. There's no substance to it. There, it's just a mirror. It just points back at itself. And so celebrating the sign that Dionysus has, which is the sign that we in, in, the, in, in today, for, for, for if you're living a life fulfilled without Jesus, all celebration ultimately, even if it's good, even if it's celebrating, a, you know, maybe you're celebrating like a good thing, it still ultimately po- points back on itself. And so celebrating this sign is like a deaf person imagining what it would be like to hear and then celebrating what they imagine as if that thing was the thing that they hoped for. It, it it doesn't point to anything of substance. There's no true celebration of anything coming to earth. It doesn't, it doesn't find its fulfillment in anything. But for us, and this is our first point of application, that we shouldn't settle for lesser wine. For us as Christians, all celebration, all longing to laugh, to have joy, they're all fulfilled in Jesus, in God's faithfulness. And the reason that we celebrate is because God has come in Jesus. And so every celebration that we do as Christians is a sign of what has come in Jesus and what will come someday when Jesus returns to fulfill his work. When we will live in a world that is just celebration. That's all it is. And it will just be celebration because there's no longer any need for signs. It's going to be incredible. And that is what what Jesus is doing here is pointing towards is, is that He has come, and the only correct response is celebration. Now, here's the thing for us today: is we sit in our houses for a very specific reason because the world is threatened right now by this virus, right? This, this, and 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 the things that we value, the things that we celebrate in a culture so often. There's really three things. We we're talking about this in our community group this week. In our, in our, as our guys got together and we. We we talked. We were talking about three things that we tend to celebrate are gone now: health, wealth, and freedom. These three things that we celebrate, specifically as Americans, many times our health. We are very affluent. Many of us are very healthy, and the idea of dying at a young age is something that is very foreign to us, very very scary to us. Our wealth, right? The economy is being threatened right now, in, in major major ways. And we put we tend to put our 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 joy or a lot of times our security in our wealth and that's being threatened right now as well. And then finally our freedom. Like we, I, I joked last week that we're under house arrest right now, but we're being told to stay in our houses right now. And our freedom has been taken away from us and that's been really hard, I know, for a lot of people. Now, these things that we celebrate, these signs of celebration that we have that point back on themselves, we can see that clearly because of how easily they can be taken from us. And and so... Um, It can be like we're at a party sometimes and we're out of wine, just like what's taking place with with Jesus in the story. The wine is almost gone and people are starting to get a little bit afraid here. That's us right now living with coronavirus. But, and this is our our, our last point of application, instead of being afraid that we're almost out of wine, we Christians can celebrate because Jesus is at the party, right? The, The things that we celebrate are not threatened by viruses. They're not threatened by pandemics. They're not threatened by... By the types of things that can rob us of celebration without Jesus. We actually find a greater fulfillment in those times because the wine of Jesus is specifically uh, fulfilled in his coming and in his death and in his resurrection. So, like I was saying earlier, the sign of Jesus, the great sign of Jesus is his resurrection. You need a death in order to get a resurrection. You need something terrible to get that sign. And yet that sign comes out all the more beautiful because we know that it, it, its glory reveals itself in hard times. And that's a reason why we as Christians can continue to celebrate Jesus' coming now because it's not threatened. Just, you know, The, 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 the signs of, of the good life of Dionysus lay stripped in front of him right now. Anytime those things are threatened, there's no longer a reason to celebrate. But we as Christians, we should continue to celebrate, even in the hard times, because that proves to us that the wine that we get that comes in Jesus is even better than any of the other wine that we could be receiving, even if times were good, even if we were at the beginning of the party when all the wine was flowing. It's in the midst of seeming to lose that wine that we find the better wine of Jesus. And so we should be celebrating right now. We should not be afraid that we're almost out of wine in this party, because uh, we have a hope that is fulfilled in Jesus, in His coming, in His death, and in His resurrection. So that's that's our sermon for you today, something for you to ponder. And so what we're gonna do now is we're gonna kinda move into, if we have any questions, um, which look, Julie says we do, we're gonna move into some time of question and answer, and if you uh, want to take this time of, of Q&A to get ready for communion after we're done answering the question, uh, we will uh, take communion together. So, kind of use this time to get, to get ready for that. So, Jesus, or <laughs> Jesus, Julie, <laughs> wow, that is, that is crazy. Um, uh, J- J- Julie just handed me the, the question. So, um, all right, so we have a couple questions, both from Thomas. What's up, Thomas? Thanks for asking some questions. His first one How much was the first miracle Jesus reluctantly fu- uh, fulfilling his obligation and the godly commandment of honoring his mother? Okay, so we talked a little bit before about how Jesus is sort of uh, separating himself out from um, the institution of family, really, which is a really important institution, especially in the ancient Jewish world. who, Who your family was, what their trade was, who your father and mother were, was incredibly important to your identity. And so you were supposed to act to bring honor to your family and not bring shame to your family. This... When we, we, I talk. I use a quote earlier that I talked about honor, shame, culture. Your goal as a good son, if you're Jesus, is to bring honor to your family. That's like your main goal in life. Actually, is to be bringing honor to your family. What Jesus is doing here is he's sort of distancing himself from his uh, from his his mother, Mary, and and kind of saying, if I'm going to act, I'm going to do this sort of of my own accord. Now Thomas is asking. Was he doing this to fulfill what his mother said? Does he kind of change his mind and be like, ah, yeah, I suppose if I'm going to be a good son, I should do what my mom asked? Um, I guess I can't answer that question and get inside of Jesus' head, but what I do know in the book of John is, and we haven't gotten to it yet, so we will, and we'll we'll unpack this more, but Jesus talks all the time in John. It's even more so in the other Gospels. John brings this out about um, obligation to his father in heaven so Jesus is saying I have a father that I have a I have like a, a, re, a close relationship with that is um, deeper than my relationship with my actual family and and so when I'm acting primarily I'm acting out of his prerogative to reveal his glory to do what I see him doing so in a sense Jesus is honoring the Jewish command to honor your father and mother but what he's saying is for him because of what God is doing um, in sending him his His heavenly Father is the Father that he responds to more. Now, in the in the synoptic Gospels, it doesn't show up in John. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I think in all three, there is another story where Jesus says something that comes across super offensive. Where he says, um, uh, someone says like, "Hey, your your mom and your brothers are here. They want you to come." While he's teaching, and he says, "Who are my mother and my brothers?" And he says, "It's those who do the will of God, my Father." and and it's kind of like again we read this sometimes and we're a little puzzled by it because it seems like Jesus is saying i don't care about my mother and my father and my brother actually jesus's uh joseph his human father probably had died at this point because we never hear about him in the gospels but so his mother and his brothers he's very much like Uh, kind of seems to be throwing them under the bus. And the point that Jesus is making there is with this new coming of the kingdom that God is bringing, there's like a new family that transcends the other institutions. And so what you do with those other family institutions still is important, but the family of God is more important. And Jesus is kind of showing us that here. So that's the first uh, question that Thomas asked. And the second one is, how would you distinguish between a sign slash miracle versus a rare coincidence or physical improbability today? Unless something that actually defies worldly physics is truly impossible, there will always be skeptics, even Christian skeptics. So, um, basically the question, Thomas, that you're asking here as I read it is, how would we decide what's a sign or miracle and what's a a rare coincidence? Um, I think um, that we should, like, uh, I get what you're asking, but I would almost say we we shouldn't. I I think God can use, um, like, God is, so, so if God is going to work around his natural law or, or physics or, or laws of nature, he can do that because he's God, right? He's the one who established them. So he's not breaking his laws if he chooses to work around them. But it actually, I think, makes a lot of sense a lot of times for God to actually use the systems that he's created um, to to accomplish it. So I'd actually say what matters most is, is the sign like pointing to his glory in some way. And we can say, even if there doesn't, you know, even if maybe we can point to like a like uh, we can kind of say scientifically, we can kind of see how this happened. Um, it just was like really weird that it happened at that point in time. I think we should still call that a sign. Um, and it, just an exa- a, a really quick example, and then I'll, and then I'll move on. Is from in the Old Testament when the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea, um, the the water stands up, right? It, it's 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 a miraculous work of the water standing up in these walls and the people walking across on dry land. We're told. Okay, seems pretty ridiculous, right? But we're actually told that a great wind blows up, and it seems as if the wind is the thing that's holding the water up. So scientifically, we can actually explain using what we we understand as natural law to explain how the water stood up. And the writer of Exodus is actually telling us how that took place. Now, the fact that it happened right when Israel needed to cross, and they stayed up for that long, that seems pretty coincidental, right? Um, and so, both can kind of be happening, I think, and it can. But, but if like we can tell that God's name is glorified, I think it's fair for us to call that a sign or a miracle, even if it's a small thing. Okay? Uh, we have one more question, it looks like. This comes from Sheena. If John's purpose in writing this gospel is to show Jesus as Yahweh, which is the the Jewish word for God, um, the covenant God of Israel, how does this sign point to Jesus' deity? That is a good question. Um, I think... Um, for this uh, sign specifically um, I mean there is so one of the ways that Jesus shows himself to be God is is through lots of Old Testament passages that talk about God returning and bringing great celebration um, and I think for for these ones that are not maybe specifically shown as you know this is a reason God is divine and we can kind of look at some divine, like attributes of, of, of Jesus being shown here, or Jesus actually says I'm God, which he does say later on. Um, I think there, there's two ways. One, Jesus is doing the stuff that God always said he would do in the Old Testament. And so kind of by implication, this is God coming. Jesus had an understanding of for him to say the stuff that he does say, he has to have some understanding that he actually is God come to do it because of who it was supposed to be that would bring this. Very specifically, we're told in the Old Testament, God is going to bring this stuff to bear on earth. And I think the second point is just, when we take this sign in the context of everything else that Jesus is doing, where Jesus actually, especially in John, what uh, Jesus says that he and the Father are one, later on in the book, in the very beginning, John himself tells us that Jesus in the, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and the Word took on flesh and came and dwelt among us. When Jesus does this kind of stuff and John gives us, again, uh, testimony or evidence of it, it makes it so we can read those claims, the things that Jesus says and John says, and, and believe them more because we have some sort of evidence. It's like, oh, this isn't a crazy person. He's actually doing stuff that seems like what God would be doing if he came uh, on earth. So I hope that answers uh, your questions. Thanks for sending those questions in. It's actually a really fun way to stay uh, interactive with each other while we're not actually able to gather in person on a Sunday morning. And actually what we're going to do now is we're going to do another thing of interaction with one another. We're going to take communion together. So I think one of the cool things about us doing this live and still taking communion together is even though we're not in the same place, we're still gathered, if you think about it. We're still gathered. We're watching together and we're taking communion together. And um, Paul says in uh, the book of First Corinthians that when we take communion together, we're showing like our unity because we're taking the same loaf of bread. Now, we're not actually taking the same loaf of bread today, but um, we are uh, we are taking bread at the same time. I think that, that shows our unity. It shows our gatheredness. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read. I'm going to move on where Paul says later on in First Corinthians in chapter 11, he kind of gives us the formula for what we say when we, we take it. So if you have this in front of you right now, go ahead and have it at the ready. I'm going to read this, and then I'll tell you when to take it. Julie and I will take it. You can take it with us. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23-26. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we take the bread, and we eat it in remembrance of Jesus' body broken for us. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this wherever you drink it in remembrance of me. So take the cup of Jesus' blood shed for us. And when we take these cups, we're celebrating, right? This is the wine that Jesus brings for us. and We take and we celebrate every week as a community. All across the world, people are taking this, even if it's not actually wine, we're, we're celebrating as if uh, like we're we're a part of this wedding that Jesus is 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 doing, where he is he's making for us a wine that we can drink to celebrate. But the wine is not made out of water; it's actually made out of his blood, and that's the thing that we remember each Sunday morning. And Paul continues and says, "Whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you pro- proclaim the Lord's death until it comes." And that's the big thing that we remember every Sunday is that. Um, The wine that Jesus gives us, that that gives us our salvation, that brings God's kingdom to earth fully, is wine that is made of his own blood.